I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slings. So. Am I going to get sued? Are we legal on this? Let's send you out on the right note. Uh, PFF sucks. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs> wow. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Just Steve Pelzola with you so far here on this Monday morning. That's right. Sam's out on vacation, but I've got a very special guest here today. It's former Minnesota Vikings general manager Rick Spielman returning to the show. Before we get to him, though, is 2024 bringing exciting or unexpected changes to your life. There's a secret weapon to help you face those challenges with more confidence. It's a great term life insurance policy. That's right. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to protect your family's financial future so you can focus on what's ahead, knowing your family is protected if something else unexpected happens. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in just minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You can go from start to cover in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash pffnfl. That's meetfabric.com slash pffnfl. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash pffnfl. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company, not available in certain states, prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, so as I mentioned, Rick Spielman going to join the show here. We had him on last year, and a lot of people liked our discussion. Hopefully we'll have... Another similar one, so let's do it right now. Let's get to a Rick Spielman, currently of CBS Sports and former Minnesota Vikings general manager. I told the story, I think, last year when we had you on the show. You yelled at me the first time that we had met <laughs> at a combine meeting, but uh, our relationship has grown since then, so, you know, baby steps here. Uh, you, So you're like, you're fresh off this Washington Commanders coaching search, right? You got this uh, this consulting gig, which is uh, which is pretty solid. Can you can you talk broadly about the the search and uh, one of the things that when people ask me about, hey, is this a good coaching candidate? I cop out and I say, I don't know, because it feels like there's so much that we don't see that makes a good coach. So can you speak broadly to the the search and what you might be looking for helping out with? Yeah, Josh Harris and uh, Bob Myers, who was a former NBA GM with the Golden State Wars, asked me to join their group. And the first task we had uh, at hand was to hire the GM. So we spent a lot of time. I did a lot of research, uh, knew a lot of the people that were going to be candidates for the next GM of the Washington Commanders. We went through that process first because Josh Harris wanted to get the general manager in place. And then from there, we would hire the head coach. So went through five candidates as a general manager, and they were all very qualified. I think all the general manager candidates that we did interview were eventually be candidates, but for the Washington commanders and what fit best with Josh Harris was in our minds, no doubt that it was Adam Peters, not only his background from new England to Denver to San Francisco, but his knowledge of personnel, but his ability to uh, to communicate across all departments under the football operations, which he will be head of. Once we got through that process, the next one was the head coaching search. And this one was very interesting. Um, 
And I could just tell you on the Bob Myers uh, situation, he, you know, wasn't brought in to get into specifics on X's and O's, but he was a great resource on leadership and on relationship with coaches and GM and talking about his relationship he had with Steve Kerr and how they won all those championships. So that gave a different perspective. In fact, I learned a lot uh, being very fortunate to be a part of this process. But we started that process. We did a lot of Zooms first. Uh, the NFL rules for hiring a head coach are different than hiring a general, a general manager. You couldn't meet with them in person until, I believe, January 22nd. So once that time came, we did the initial interviews by Zoom. Those usually lasted about two and a half hours. And then the in-person interviews lasted about six hours. And we broke it up in different segments where uh josh and bob and adam would meet for a segment myself mark mayhew and josh would or adam would do another segment we got more into the football specifics i think the biggest thing that the owner and adam wanted to know was the relationship going forward so a lot of qualified candidates everybody that we interviewed i was thoroughly impressed with some of those guys did get jobs some didn't but i think they're going to be future head coaches in the NFL, but we would come back after we each did our respective areas that we were going to interview these candidates and come and come back and give our opinions on strengths and weaknesses. The most important part of the process was, and especially me with my background, was, okay, I'm, I'm not hiring a head coach. I will give you the positives and negatives that I believe he has and why he would be a great leader for the uh, Washington Commanders, but Josh and Adam Peters had to ultimately make that decision because that's the guy that they're going to be working with directly. I don't have to work with them. So my role was there just to tell them my thoughts and feelings on each of the candidates as we went through. But I loved the process, loved the GM process. I learned a lot on how different teams do different things and it made me even more educated than I was before I became part of this uh, this search. You mentioned Bob Myers coming from, you know, the Golden State Warriors and coming from the NBA. I I think people initially hear that. They're like, oh, he doesn't know football. But as you clarified it, it is, it's the relationship aspect. It's also just learning how other organizations operate. I think that might be underused, right? I mean, I, I've watched I've watched Bob uh, on Sloan analytics panels because I'm going to be at the Sloan conference again this year. And I I remember before I was on the panel last year, I'd watch all these old uh, panels from other sports. I'd watch baseball and I'd watch basketball. And I thought I learned a lot just listening to little snippets of how they how they solved problems, how they operated. It's not about so much you know, the on-field or the X's and O's, but the process. So I, I imagine the process. that was a, yeah, I imagine that was a great asset for, for Washington in the search here. Yeah, that's what it was. It was having different viewpoints and not just all football or all this or all that, but uh, I guess the best way, just crossing over from sport to sport. But in essence, we're all looking for, you know, a leader. We're all looking for someone uh, who can communicate uh, someone who's going to be able to relate with the players to develop talent. Now they do it differently in the NBA, but then the NFL, but you still got to do it. It's just different ways. So it's great to listen to different ideas and maybe you pick up a thing or two that they do 
in the NBA that that's not being done in the NFL and vice versa. So that's to me was the besides listening and interviewing these candidates, uh, uh, the most uh, fun I've had on learning different things that I didn't know before I was, uh, like I said, fortunate to be a part of this uh, search. Do you, do you think there's some anything missing? Do you think Dan Campbell's success in Detroit has changed the way teams will do coaching searches in the future or the people that they're looking for? Because historically it's been who's the who are the best offensive coordinators, the people that they've worked their way up through the organization. Now they're good play callers. They have a good scheme. They have a good system. Now they're the head coaching candidates. But Dan Campbell didn't necessarily have that, but he's come in and been awesome for the Lions, as you know. Uh, does that does that change anything? Is that an anomaly? How do you see you know maybe Dan Campbell's ascent? Yeah, well, it's the same thing. D'Amico Ryan's look what he did when he got his opportunity again. Another now he was a coordinator. I understand that, but another former player that was a good football player, but a leader of the team. So as you see these uh, coaches that are coming up that were former players that were also great leaders, I think that's what people are looking for and you can't go into these searches just saying hey we want the brightest mind offensive coordinator because he may be a great offensive coordinator but can he run an organization can he oversee the defense the special teams and everything else that comes across his desk so there are guys that end up being great coordinators but not great head coaches but I think the traits it doesn't matter whether you're offense defense special teams whatever it's leadership, it's ability to cum- communicate across platforms, and it's ability to develop talent, and it's ability to put a staff together that will be able to do that. I, the staffing thing, I think, is is extremely underrated. Again, that's why as an analyst, when somebody asks me, how do you like this head coaching candidate? I say, I don't know. I'm not in the interviews. I don't know who they're going to hire, what their philosophy is. I also think that's probably why there's a challenge with uh, interim head coaches, right? I mean, they... they they're an interim head coach. They fill in for a while. Even if their team goes on a run, it's not really the full job, right? They're just keeping the ship afloat for a year, but the job is putting everything else into place and being that CEO. So it feels like that's just a big part of the challenge when trying to predict who the next great leader is going to be for, for an organization. Yeah, and I could just mention what really stuck out about Dan Quinn and uh, why I think Josh and Adam made a great choice was that Dan Quinn, you know, people forget, got Atlanta to a Super Bowl. Now, I know they ended up, you know, having that collapse in the second half, but they got there. And Dan Quinn is maybe the most humble person that I've met, but yet has a presence to him. And when he goes back and he's talking about how he reassessed himself on the mistakes that he made or his blind spots, and how he took his own initiative to go out and seek help in those blind spots to make him better if he did get an op- their opportunity from experts in those areas. And I thought that, you know, what more do you want from a leader than someone that is humble, that knows he doesn't know everything and is willing to go out and seek help to get better? We all have our own faults. I have my own faults. You, I don't know, Steve, you don't have any faults, apparently. Nope. But... <laughs> It's great when someone has that. The other thing that I thought was really critical in the uh, coaching search is you can get a feel for someone on the Zoom, but the in-person is 
not replaceable. It is when you have that person in the room, you can feel that energy. You can feel whatever that it factor is, whether they have that or not. I mean, they can do the presentation. You go through all the questions that you have to go through, but you can really feel that person, whether you're like Adam is going to connect with that person or not. And I don't think you get that same sense, even though you get a feel, but not like it is when you, you sit there across from somebody uh, across the table and, and interview them. Yeah, Dan, I, again, I can only see what I see, but Dan Quinn coming from that Seattle defensive scheme from uh, early of the last decade, a lot of the defensive coordinators from that scheme kind of kept the scheme intact and everything for a while. And I think Dan Quinn did in Atlanta, but I was most impressed with what he did in Dallas by adjusting his system to personnel. And it feels like that's a little bit of what you're saying is that, you know, Quinn's uh, shown the ability to, to adjust and uh, continue to improve. You, You have to. And I think that's, what's the difference in today's NFL is that you can have your base schemes, but there's some, whether it's offense or defense, but, the opposing coaches are pretty smart too. Eventually they get a bead on what you're doing. So how what do you do to adjust your scheme? And I think the most important thing now is that these successful coaches are taking players that can do multiple things, either on the offense or defensive side, a la, you know, Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco, what he does with Christian McCaffrey, what he does with Debo. Uh, and even, you know, you watch what Spags has done as the defensive coordinator out in Kansas City. He uses those guys in multiple ways. And how do you, you keep evolving your system? Because if you stay stagnant, to me, that's when you get passed up. All right. I want, we're going to talk a little draft today and some of the evaluations. And, you know, you've been grinding the film, I think, right? Leading up to the combine here in a couple of weeks. But thank you what, to PFF. I have the ability to to do that. So <laughs> always happy to take care of you, Rick. Uh, I have one more broad question, and it reminds me of the NBA a little bit since we were talking about that earlier. And I may have asked this to you last year. You may have hated the question. So we'll try it again. The NBA feels it feels like they spend all of their decisions around finding superstars, right? So they're either trying to uh, be drafting at the top so they could draft a superstar or they're building an ecosystem where a free agent superstar wants to join the roster because the impact of one player is massive. In the NFL, the quarterback might be similar as far as impact, right? If not greater. And so obviously Mahomes wins another Super Bowl. Mahomes and Brady have won like 90% of the last, you know, 15 Super Bowls, whatever it is. Uh, should the should the NF is there a way that the NFL should be approaching the quarterback position almost like the NBA approaches superstars? And so everything it's not so it's not just finding a starting caliber quarterback of which many exist, but finding a top five to top eight quarterback. Is there a way that the NFL should be kind of adopting what the what the NBA would do around superstars, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, I don't know how you do that. There's so yeah. many different variables in the NFL, yeah. injuries, the number of people you have. You can't, you know, in the NBA, and I'm not an NBA expert, but if you hook up two or three guys that are superstars and then have two other guys in a pretty decent bench, uh, you know, then you're oh, going to have yeah. You yeah. make a run, yeah. But you have 22 guys, you got 53 guys, and you can't, right. from a salary cap standpoint, have okay we're going to have 11 guys we're going to play top dollar to and build around them to me 
the NFL is so much different because you're hoping to get your superstars, in my opinion, if you're drafting well. And then those are the guys that you're going to build your roster, you know, like I believe Brad Holmes did in Detroit when they hit it out of the park last year. Those guys are, from an economic standpoint, great value because then you can have some guys around. Look what San Francisco is able to do, adding a piece here or there because of Brock Purdy's contract right now. They can't touch that for another year. But to say that that model would work in the NFL, I think there's way too many variables in the NFL compared to what they're dealing with in the NBA. Yeah, I guess the way I was thinking about it, and that makes a ton of sense, right? Because it, it does, like the rookie contract quarterback or the superstar quarterback, right? Like those are your two right. advantages. So the way this would potentially work is you're just continuing to take shots at quarterbacks because you don't, you might not know when, when one is going to hit um, or, and I always use the word middle, middle class quarterback, right? Very isn't, you know, that's a, an endearing term. Those are some of the best quarterbacks in the world, but those are the guys that you're sitting there. Like you're legitimately in the middle. Is this guy going to take me to a championship or do I need to move on? Should teams move on quicker and take bigger well, swings? I guess. I guess the question I'm going to ask you, taking bigger swing at who? If someone has Patrick, you think Kansas City's going to put Patrick Mahomes on the market and trade him? Oh no! Until you, I said until you have no. Obviously not. I'm saying I'm saying through the draft. Just right. like, if you went crazy drafting because you you couldn't necessarily predict Brock Purdy. Not that he's a top four guy or anything, but it's a it's a hit right for San Francisco. Um, you're just going to keep going until you find that one because if you don't have one then you 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 probably don't have a chance at a championship. No, but how many of them? I mean, that's like uh a, you know, a little bit of a needle in a haystack. Hopefully you eventually yes. hit one of those, but you know, are you going to still be in a job while you're still trying to hit one of those 3 4 5 years later? It's a it's such a <laughs> tough place to be. I I got asked about the Steelers quarterback situation yesterday on the radio, and I was given like nine scenarios. You know, you could keep Kenny Pickett, you could trade for Fields, yeah. you could trade for this guy. And I'm like, I don't love, I don't love any of them necessarily. <laughs> you know, right. as far as trying to build a championship team, it's a tough spot to be in. Uh, all right, let's talk. Let's talk about the draft and these quarterbacks. I've I saw an interview with you where you were you you love Caleb Williams. Is that is that still the case? Yeah, I do. I think he had, he is a special talent. Uh, watching him, I understand some of his flaws, but the guy is extremely athletic. I, he makes incredible throws, especially uh, off-platform. He has tremendous arm talent. I think he tries to do too much at times, like a lot of these guys. Uh, force it in the situations where it probably shouldn't have thrown the ball. I think that's all correctable with coaching. Everybody goes back, well, did you watch the Notre Dame game? Well, I watched the first half of the Notre Dame game, and he wasn't very good, made poor decisions. But also what really stuck out to me is when he came out the second half, he actually played really well in the second half. So that told me, hey, okay, I had a crap first half, but it didn't linger into the second half. He regrouped himself, regathered, and came out, and they didn't win the game. Uh, but they, but he played much better in the second half, so he can overcome adversity. The rest will be, you know, once you get through all this pre-draft process. But I think from a talent standpoint, athletically, from a natural gifted playmaker, uh, I, I think that he is one of the best I've seen coming out of college. 
I, I love that you mentioned the adversity because every one of the top quarterbacks had something that they had to overcome, right? All of the elite guys over the last few years. And then even uh, CJ Stroud had a game against Northwestern last year. We had what, nine completions and 60 yards and it was terrible weather. But I mean, every, you can't go back through every everyone's college games and be like, oh, they were all perfect. So no. I, I get that. And the one thing that was always interesting was if they played poorly, how did they respond the next week? Especially with all these kids now on whatever social medias and yeah. all the exposure they have out there and fans, you know, a lot of the kids when we interview them at the time, oh yeah, I just turned off my social media. Well, you may, but your girlfriend, your your friends, your your mom, your dad are reading all that crap they're writing about you. But how does he respond? Does it linger? Or does he come back and have maybe his best game after it played a crappy game? So I think Caleb Williams will be the, I, I think most will have him going number one to the Bears. I expect the Bears to take him at number one. It seems like there's a lot more debate than I had anticipated between Drake May, Jaden Daniels, uh, maybe even some others in the top 15. Where, where do you stand on the 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 second best quarterback in the league, in the, uh, in the draft? Yeah, I like Drake May a lot. Uh, I had the ability and uh, to watch him play live down in Miami last year. And um, his size, I think he is very athletic. I think he has arm talent. I think he's another one. He did not have the same talent around him this year. He made some poor decisions, turning the ball over or forcing the ball where it probably could have kept it. Uh, and then Jaden Daniels is an incredible story coming from where he started at at uh, ASU, uh, Arizona State, where he was still developing. You can say, God, this guy will never be a first-round pick to when he transferred into LSU and the strides he made from last year to this year and uh, how much better he has improved. So I think all three of these uh, are going to be very successful quarterbacks in the league i think there's a drop off into that next tier and it'll be interesting to see how many actually do go in the first round and steve if i can ask you a question respectfully um i think there how many there's two parts to this question how many quarterbacks do you think are actually first round talent and then the second part of it's how many will actually get drafted in the first round Oh, good. I, I like what you, we because it's just you and I. You have to be able to ask me questions, so that's good. We, you're, I am open for questions. Um, I'm, I'm with you on who the top three is. I think a Bo Nix is probably, I'd say, first round talent. I'm not. I don't love Bo Nix. Um, and I think four or five probably still end up going in the first. So let's say four, four first round talents and five go in the first round. What I what I don't know is that that pivot point of Vikings, Broncos, Raiders, three teams who need quarterbacks, are they taking one there or are they gonna try to wait till the second? Or are they gonna try to trade up? So I think that's that's kind of the pivot point for number of quarterbacks. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not as big a Bo Nix fan as you are, apparently. I don't uh, love I don't yeah, love yeah. I don't love him. You have him as your fourth quarterback. He's not the fourth quarterback in his draft. Oh, who's who's fourth? J.J. McCarthy. Maybe, maybe it's the small sample size on J.J., but it's it's hard for me to project what I haven't seen. I know that's the job, but it's hard it's hard to project with seeing him in a, in a high-volume system. 
Only thing I would say is where you've seen it, uh, and he played very well, even though they lost the game, is when they played TCU in a semifinal game two years ago. And yeah. he had to air it out and got into a shootout. And you've seen all the throws and everything he is capable of doing. Now, I understand he's athletic and people want to maybe label him a game manager because of what Michigan asked him to do this year yeah. uh, in the system that he ran. But that was a glimpse of if you let him go, uh, I thought he played excellent in that TCU game and just threw the ball all over the yard. Now, does he need time to develop? Yes. Um, does he is he more than a game manager? Maybe your point. I don't know that because uh, you didn't see that this year. I know the one game that I couldn't believe the poor decisions he made was against Bowling Green. I think he threw three interceptions that game. And I was watching the tape and I said, boy, this is unfalcon believable. Get it, Bully Green Falcons. <laughs> I like it. I mean, and most evaluators just, you know, they pick six to eight games and it's all the best teams. That's good you watch the Bowling Green game. You can learn from learn Well, from I wanted to see it because he threw three interceptions that game. Why do you yeah. throw in three interceptions against Bowling Green? Listen, uh, Rick, I can be swayed off of QB takes. I think I, I, I know I've been around a lot of evaluators and everybody's very confident in their evaluations and their process and everything. I am least confident in quarterback because I think the, what, what constitutes success, I think is just, it's just a higher standard than other positions, right? Where again, we're not just trying to find, is this guy an NFL starter? I don't know if I care that much. If he's just a starter, I want a guy that's a game changer. And it's been, I think it's been challenging to predict that over the last few years. If you if you do find the formula, you will make a gazillion dollars. <laughs> I know, I know. I, <laughs> I you thought know. you've been working on that in your secret lab back there with all your numbers and twists it's and turns. <laughs> yeah, I've got it. I think I've got it. I got it for non quarterbacks here, Rick. I got the the models looking good for non QBs. The figuring out of you know the top eight quarterbacks in the NFL, man, that is that is challenging. I can be swayed. My my note on Bo Nix. I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat this for our podcast listeners throughout the season here was something to the effect of he could be good, but I don't want to be the team that finds out, you know, I just, I, you know, like it, I'm okay if I miss on him, but I don't know if I want to be the team that, you know, has to make that investment to, to see it. So, so I get it. I'm not, I don't, I don't feel strongly either way, but you do JJ McCarthy. So do you think he's going top 15? That seems to be the hype. Well, take it with a grain of salt because I'm sitting here doing this podcast with you. So <laughs> Right, we're on equal footing now. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Although I, I am very, I will be very opinionated. I may not be right, but at least you know where I stand on players. As I said, the uh, evaluators I know are extremely confident, even if uh, not you per se, but others who maybe, maybe don't have the best track record or whatever. You know, maybe haven't won the most games, and they're like, oh, I know what, exactly what I'm doing. So, uh, any any other QBs maybe that have caught your eye or that. Um, that you have strong opinions on either way? You know, the guy that's the, uh, you know, we talked about Michael Penix Jr., and I think he'll come down to the medical. And, you know, right. uh, he did show up, didn't play in the senior bowl, but showed up at practice down there. Uh, does he slide into the first round? Um, the guy that is a mystery to me and I, is Spencer Rattler because he's not overly big, but he's got very good arm. Very easy throwing motion. Uh, looked very good down at the Senior Bowl. But the question I have is some of his decision-making. 
And it was an issue when he was at Oklahoma and actually got beat out by Caleb Williams. And then he was at South Carolina, but he never took them any farther than, you know, any just than a very, or I shouldn't say very, an average to good SEC team, but nothing that would took him to the next level. So, and the thing I had issues with him was the decision-making in critical situations during the game. So, and he's had some talent down there. Leggett's coming out, the receiver. Uh, you know, they had the tight end uh, Bell from, that transferred to Florida yeah. State. Uh, so he's had some players to throw the ball to. It just seems like whatever that is, and I wish I had the answer to that, because you're going to fall in love with his arm. You're going to fall in love with the, the way the ball comes out. You're going to, you know, he's more than capable of making plays uh, with his athletic skill set. It's just the decision-making part in critical situations in the game. Yeah, we've talked a lot about Rattler, had a lot of people bring Rattler up as a, you know, a guy, if if he's in, if he's around in the third round or whatever it might be, that teams might say, okay, that's that's worth a shot. Let's see if we can develop him because he, he looked like he was going to be the next great Oklahoma quarterback before Caleb Williams did beat him out. Right? There was that run of Baker, Baker. Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts. Yeah, and it was uh, he. Yeah, it was what's that? Was it Spencer and then Caleb right after Jalen Hurts? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, and it just, for whatever reason, it didn't work out there, but he didn't make very good decisions at Oklahoma either uh, with some of the turnovers that he created. So if that's fixable or not, that's what teams are going to have to figure out. All right. Let's go to some of the other position groups. How about receiver? We just did a lot on receiver uh, last week here on the, on the show. I think people have raved about Marvin Harrison Jr., but not just him, Malik Neighbors. Roma Dunze, do you have a favorite uh, at receiver? Do you have any, um, who are your favorites at receiver at the top? Okay, I, I would agree with those three. I think Marvin yeah. Harrison Jr. is going to be a Hall of Famer. I, I really think nice. he's unique. Uh, and then neighbors, whoever, wherever he ends up, is going to bring an explosive playmaker. I think he's the most explosive player down the field. Dunze really took a big leap from last year to this year. And, you know, Maybe not as fast or as fluid as uh, neighbors, but big physical body can go up and get the ball and contested catches. And I mentioned he's going to be a beast in the red zone for some team as he continues to develop. And then it gets murky after you it go does. down through after that. And the guy that I really, really think has a chance to be special uh, is Michael Thomas Jr. Because he is big. He can run. He doesn't run a lot of in the route tree. Sorry, he, Brian, Brian, Thomas Brian yeah. yeah, yeah, I got you. Okay. Yeah, uh, sorry, Brian. I was, look, I was looking at my list. I was like, I missed, I missed a sleeper. Well, it wouldn't be the first one. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, go on. Talk yeah, about Brian. Yeah, Thomas. Brian. But, yeah, but his speed after the catch for his size and his athleticism, I think, you know, everybody talked about, he's the guy that was kind of left behind. I mean, not talked about as much. But the more and more tape you watch on him, he just continues to make big plays. And he just grew on me the more tape that I watched out of him. And I think he has a chance out of that bunch of second-tier receivers uh, may have the biggest upside of of, of developing. Yeah, there's a, it feels like there's a lot of vertical-type receivers in this draft. You know, guys that can stretch the field might not be the best 
Uh, it felt like last year there was some shorter, shiftier types of receivers, the Tank Dells right, and Flowers of the world. Yes. And this year, you've got some big vertical threats. I don't know if they're – but a guy like Brian Thomas probably has to you know polish up parts of his game, isn't as well-rounded, <laughs> but has some big playability. I'm, yeah. I'm seeing more of that, I think, in the receiver class here. Yeah, a lot of big outside guys. They're not the uh, smaller slot guys. Um, I I want to. Uh, Do you have a things. sleeper? Do you have a sleeper at receiver? I I don't know if he's a sleeper, but all my, I think all the I called him a data darling yesterday. I think when you start when you just start looking at uh, pure numbers, this guy's going to pop at the top, and that's uh, Troy Franklin from Oregon. And then I also like. I you know from what I've seen on film so far he's a little he's slight absolutely, but um, I think he has a chance to be good. Troy Troy Franklin from from Oregon, I think with with receivers I, there's a lot of like flavor and what you like and where you're gonna play a guy right. So from um from a drafting standpoint, how do you how do you weigh a position like receiver where there's there's always a plethora of them because you can view them through, well, he's just going to be a Z or he's just going to be a slot or he's just going to be in this certain role. Therefore, he I think he's it's he could have more weaknesses, basically, versus like a tackle, right? If a tackle has a weakness, that gets exposed because he's got to play every snap. How do you weigh that as far as scarcity goes when you're thinking about uh, draft board and, and how draft strategy comes together? Yeah, because there's always, uh, it seems to be, that's the position that there is always a abundance of, if that makes sense, especially yep. if you get down through Saturday. And you'll be very appreciative of this. We really relied on some of the analytics to help us. We could see what we see on tape. The one thing is they have to be able to catch the ball. And, you know, down at the Senior Bowl this year, Tez Walker, who I think can maybe the fastest guy in this draft, uh, you know, missed half the season because of the NCAA at North Carolina, but he couldn't catch the ball at the senior bowl. And is that mental? Is that rough. something? He, it was a rough week for him down there. And I think he's dropped out. I mean, dropped down some boards, but there are specific areas, I think, in analytics that you can help you maybe sift through this like stack of four or five guys uh which ones potentially are going to be the cream of the crop out of that and stacking wherever that is in your board to help you try to uh decipher through some of that stuff would you would you ever say and because i know we've last year we talked a little bit about the horizontal board and you might have guys with similar grades or whatever it is would scarcity of a position ever be a tiebreaker in other words you have a tackle and a receiver is that yeah so let's say you're a guy yeah, you're taking, you know, if you look across your horizontal board and you have, you know, you're in the fourth round or fifth round and you have 15 more receivers on the board that you think are draftable and you only have two corners left and they're equal in ability, you're going to take the corner because, you know, you got a lot of swings at uh, at these receivers. So a lot of it has to do with the depth of the position uh, in the direction you will go at times with your draft picks. All right, let's move to offensive tackles. Um, I think uh, I think most people might have Joe Alt of Notre Dame as the number one tackle. There was a point where I think Olu Fashanu from Penn State was going to challenge him. People like Amarius Mims from Georgia. Do you have a favorite tackle in this class? Uh, I'm going to go with Fashanu. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. I don't. I don't hate that because there's. Uh, go ahead. Tell me about Fashanu. Why do you love him? 
because I think he has the most upside. I think yeah. he has to get more consistent in the run, but he's very good in pass protection. Uh, he's just such a fluid mover, long arms, everything you want in a potential Pro Bowl left tackle. Uh, but he still has to develop. So I think his ceiling, Florida ceiling, is higher than Alt. I think Alt is going to be a day one starter when he walks in the door as well. He'll be a very good player in the NFL. But I think Fashanu has a higher ceiling uh, than Alt. Both will be starters day one. It's just one has a higher ceiling to me. So I went with a maybe not as polished but higher ceiling guy. Okay, so same same thing. You're in the general manager seat again, and so how do you balance um, the quote, say the quote unquote safer pick of a Joe Alt versus the higher ceiling of Shanu? Does that depend on where you are from a roster building standpoint? If you feel like you're closer to contending, you're going to take a safer pick. If you feel like you're further away, you're going to ch- choose the ceiling. And now, how, does I, that affect anything? No, I think that's where. You know, what we would do is, let's say everything's equal, medical's equal, smarts are, every, every, all the intangibles are check, 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 they're equal. So that is where we would have our group studies. So our, our coaches would sit in with our scouts, and if there was a discrepancy during the first round of draft meetings, uh, then I know I would write those two names down. And I said, let's watch the tape on both of these and come up with what is the best option for us uh, if we're on the clock and we have an opportunity and both of those guys are staring at us. So you go through all those scenarios. You go through the group study uh, and come up with a consensus in a room of which one that you want to go with. I like it. So there's nothing about the type of player or the style or when you think they're going to share that meshes. Yeah. No, but again, okay, I understand this guy may struggle. Fashanu may struggle a little bit more, but in six weeks into the season, he's going to be better than Joe Walt. So it's, oh, it's so you, like you think it might even be that quick. When we when we talk developmental, we're not talking necessarily two years. Like you think it could be. Yeah, quick. I think it could be just yeah. because he's so gifted. You look how some of these guys show up down at the senior bowls. Why? I love going to the Senior Bowl. You go down there with questions on the guy, and you watch him Tuesday, and by Thursday, he's he's a better player. They're better, yeah. Fashanu looked like one of the best pass-protecting tackles I've seen in college, like in a long time. Just pure pass protection as far as what he can do, footwork, uh, everything. Yeah, he's just, he's just yeah. a naturally gifted athlete that has – and you ask yourself – are the flaws in these guys correctable with coaching or are you seeing what you see? And that's what it's going to be. And I think a lot of Fashanu's flaws will be able to get corrected with coaching. All right. One of the other positions that's going to be tough to sort out at the top is cornerback. There's probably five guys who all have uh, first round potential. Not sure if there's others who end up in there, but how how are you uh, breaking down the cornerback position? Another one that is, you know, what type of corner are you looking for, depending on your team, your scheme, and what you what you need? Yeah, this as I was kind of looking through it, this stack of five corners, I think there will be a different order on every team's draft board. Who's one? Who's two? Who's three? Who's four? Who's five? Because they're all different in a way, you know. Terryon Arnold, for example, from Alabama. When you watch the first half of the season. 
You see his athleticism, you see his speed, you see his ability to play man coverage, but he's just too inconsistent. So I'm like, why is this guy even coming out? And then the back half of the season, I think he has four or five interceptions. All of a sudden, something clicked, and you see this corner that has this size and this natural athletic ability, and he still needs to get polished up a little bit here. Uh, but he is such a smooth mover, and he's more than willing in run support. And then Quinyan Mitchell from Toledo, who, while well, he played in the MAC, you know, and he has unique ball skills, in my opinion. I watched the San Jose State game. I think he had five PBUs that game, but he can play zone. I questioned a little bit is if he had to play press man or mirror receivers in coverage when I was watching the college tape, although I think he could do it. But that box got checked down at the Senior Bowl because I thought right. he was by far the best corner. So those guys. And then you got McKinstry. You got the DeGene. Um, you know, you have Wiggins. They all have their strengths and weaknesses. So I think it a lot depend on how they're stacked on draft boards will depend on the scheme. And the one guy that maybe is just below there, but I was thoroughly impressed with his tape, uh, his man coverage skills, but he is a tone setter on defense. And that's Rake Straw, the uh, corner from Missouri. He was fun to watch on tape because of his physicality. Yeah, it's some good reps against Malik Neighbors when they played LSU. I mean, the other interesting thing about corner is uh, if you look over the last few years, the success rate on first-rounders versus second-rounders has been pretty drastic. You're getting... The NFL is generally pretty good at saying this guy's a first round corner and he's going to, you know, play in the league and, and and have success. I mean, so the the fact that there's the five, maybe six, as you mentioned, with Rakestraw that are going uh, feels like a strong position group. And I, I'm with you. I think every year it's it's scheme based, right? Are we going to play a little bit more press man? Are we going to play more zone? Wh which of these corners is going to fit what we do defensively? I'm also with you on Quinion Mitchell. Man, I, I think he only had 20 or 30 press snaps last year at Toledo anyway, right? So right. the Senior Bowl was huge for him. Um, I don't think he took any reps on day three of the Senior Bowl because he was he had a great first couple of days, and he did he did tick some of those boxes, especially in, in press coverage. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. And just because they fly off uh, a certain way, it doesn't mean that <laughs> they may fly off according to what the team needs at that position and what fits. It's not you know, well, this guy's better than this guy. Well, maybe the guy that went ahead of him is better in the scheme that that team is going to run. No, I completely agree. I think that's, that's huge. I don't, um, I don't know if you have any linebacker takes, but I was, I was going to say generally, do you feel like the linebacker, the linebacker position goes back and forth between seemingly being overvalued and undervalued. As soon as it's under, there's fewer first round picks or there's not as much money going to linebackers. Sometimes that reverts back. Then you see a lot of the successful defenses having guys like Roquan Smith and Patrick Queen in the middle, having Fred Warner and Dre Greenlaw in the middle in San Francisco. Do you think the linebacker position, where, where do you stand on the linebacker position? Overvalued, undervalued, perfectly valued? I think everybody's going to want cover guys and rushers. And, but these guys, I mean, look what Roquan Smith did for Baltimore. And all of a sudden that defense elevated. So I don't think you can undervalue that. Uh, it's almost like, I'd hate to say this because I don't believe in it, but, you know, our running backs undervalued now. 
So, or is it the linebacker oh side on the defense? Oh because yeah. look at what you like. I, I believe me, there is no Gibbs or Robinson coming out in this year's draft at the running back position. But look at where Greenlaw was drafted. What round? Look at where Warner was drafted. Uh, you know, we drafted Anthony Barr in the first round. But he had a, a unique skill set because Zim would put him in different spots to get him on the linebacker to rush the passer. But he also right. was six four, had length. But there's so many guys that are that five eleven to six one range that are real athletic. But I don't want to call them dime a dozen. But there are a lot of those that hey, I can go at a more premium position uh, and then pick up my linebackers on Friday. Yeah. When I, it's funny because when I, I use the word value a lot and I, I, I think of it through a couple different lenses, it's like, would you like to have a really good one or how, how important is it to have a really good one? And you mentioned Roquan Smith. I mean, the, the change in Baltimore's defense after Roquan Smith was traded for in 2022 was massive. So I think the, the value of having a great one or a guy that fits well within the system is, is huge, but then it comes down to where, you know, do you want do you have to take swings at that in the first round versus free agency versus later in the draft? Right. So that's kind of the, uh, the question there. It doesn't, it, it, I don't know if you've gotten into the linebackers or not. They're always like the last guys I watch along with running backs. Cause I'm biased. Um, so <laughs> do you have any linebacker takes in this group before we get into edges? Yeah. You know, i looked at a couple of them. I still got some work to do. I watched Trotter who I think is a very good football player, but not a first round talent. I think he's undervalued a little bit about what he does in pass protection or in pass coverage, uh, make some plays there, but, uh, very instinctive. I think he got his dad's genes from an instinctual standpoint. Yeah. Uh, you know, there there's guys, but you know, Peyton Wilson, who is ideal size, runs around like uh, his hair is on fire, needs to learn how to take on blocks. Uh, and his biggest thing will be the medical, and he's an older guy. So there's some athletic guys, I think, in this draft class. Uh, but it'll be Cooper is the kid at Texas A&M, another very athletic guy. Uh, Colson at Michigan will probably go on Friday. But I don't know if those guys what's the best most politically correct way to say this they will be good football players but are they going to be and maybe one of these guys are are they going to be game changers for you on the defensive side of the ball you don't you don't have to be politically correct here that's perfectly fine um just just be well, i know how sensitive you are we've had a lot of talks oh, yes. okay. very, sensitive. very sensitive uh i always i always uh i feel for linebackers i feel like everything that offensive coordinators are trying to do is trying to make them wrong and make them look bad. All the misdirection, all the QB run game, all the zone coverage that teams are playing right now, challenging on linebackers. Well, well, let me ask you this, how important a linebacker is. When Greenlaw went down with the unfortunate Achilles running onto the field, Kelsey had one catch in the first half in the Super Bowl. I yep. think he ended up with nine catches because they were all of a sudden, Greenlaw wasn't in there, and the middle of the field became wide open, and it was like a pitch and catch between Mahomes and Kelsey because Greenlaw wasn't in there compared to what they were able to do in the first half. Completely agree. I mean, the it was just it was very easy for Kansas City to just manipulate leverage to just you know get to, get the ball to the outside when they wanted and then counter off of it. I mean, they, again, I think 
I think offenses and you know and Andy Reid and great play callers do a great job of making linebackers look bad. And so when you do have a good one, it um, it's one of the ways to slow down some of those great offenses. Um, how about edge defender? I feel like that's got some you know this you know your pure pass rushers. I feel like that's got some questions at the top. You know Dallas Turner from Alabama, Jared Verse from Florida State, Latu from from UCLA. Do you have any favorites in that class? Yeah, um, you know. Dallas Turner to me is the most athletic, uh, you know, at times I don't, you know, I'd like to see him play a little harder. Not that I'm saying that he's a slack by any means, but to me, he's the most naturally gifted edge rusher, even though he's not, you know, six, five and 270 pounds. And, and, but when he turns it on, you know, a lot of people thought that he was better than Will Anderson. When Will Anderson came out, Will Anderson ended up being defensive rookie of the year this year. Uh, and verse, I mean, that was a great success story of not being recruited, transferring from Albany to Florida State. First game he plays, I can't remember, it was in the opener. Um, LSU, I believe. LSU. And just yeah. like, who in the heck, where did this, they get this guy from? Uh, and then he's more of a power rusher to me that can counter off his power. But now he plays with his hair on fire. He's a going Jesse down in and down out. And then Latu. Um, you know, will all be about his medical because he is probably the best technician, in my opinion, especially using his hands. Yeah. Um, you know, he can play a little stouter at the point, but he's not a liability versus the run. But his natural movement skills and his technique with his hands are far superior for anyone else coming out in this draft. And almost veteran-like, like he's been playing for three or four years and been coached for three or four years on how he uses his hands. And then you get to the, you know, the, the second tier of guys. Um, the guy that kind of stuck out to me uh, the most was down at the Senior Bowl, and I liked him on tape. I didn't love him, was Darius Robinson from Missouri. Now, there's a guy that looks to me, when I saw him, he looked like, built like Daniil Hunter. Um, when you get him off the bus and when he showed the ability to come off the edge, to use that one arm power move, uh, to counter off that, but also how effective he was when they slid him inside in some nickel rush situations during the one-on-ones over guards and centers. And it was a mismatch. So I thought he was a Friday guy all the way. Um, uh, but when teams go back and evaluate the one-on-one -on -one pass rushes at the senior bowl. Don't be surprised if you don't hear his name sneak in at the bottom of the first round. I mean, Chop Robinson's another kid that plays very hard. It's just the size may be a concern. So Trice is another guy that I thought played very hard. He may not have had the sack numbers, but he disrupts the quarterback. And when you watch him in the Texas game, he rushed from the left side, from the right side. He had an effect on yours in that game and, and probably helped them win that game because of the way he played. So there's a lot of, I think, good pass rushers. Is there an elite pass rusher like a Miles Garrett? I don't know if I've seen one of those guys. Uh, but I don't know, and I'm asking you this. Did you think Will Anderson was an elite player coming out of Alabama last year? I I did think Will Anderson was an elite overall prospect. I didn't, and maybe not the pure pass rusher of a Garrett or a TJ Watt or um, – a Bosa, one of the Boses, but I thought Anderson was one of the best all around. I thought he was clearly 
above uh, Tyree Will. I know there was some Tyree Wilson discussion last year because of the traits of Wilson, but I thought it was clearly Anderson. So he looked pretty good as a rookie. I, I don't know if any of these guys are as good as Will Anderson overall as a prospect, in my opinion. But I, I agree with all your list there. Like That's a bunch of, I think, good potential players there. The yeah. one thing is it, when you're watching these guys, it was like Will Anderson, they reduced him down a lot. And yeah. so he was head up over a tight end. Uh, and so you didn't get to see what, you know, and then he goes out to or gets drafted by Houston. Now they pay him in that wide nine and let him, do, hey, pin your ears back and go get the guy with the uh, opposite color jersey that's trying to throw the ball. And you talk about a guy that plays hard, snap in and snap out. I don't think you've seen a lot of that in college, but you also got to look at where they were lining him up and then how, and that's a great example of when you're in these draft meetings. Well, we're not going to put him in that head up over a tight end. We're going to put him in a wide nine or outside and just pin his ears back and go. That's how we're going to utilize him. I think that's where the personnel and the coaching, when they get together, they have to be on the same page and, I always relied on the coaching staff is we could tell you the strengths and weaknesses of this player, but how are you going to use him to make him be the best player he could be in our system? So you, the coaches will go into, well, I see him doing this or this or this, or we wouldn't put him there. We would put him there. And so that's to me in Kansas city does a phenomenal job with Brett Veach and Andy Reed and, and Spags uh, on, on, all the hits they've hit on the defensive side of the ball are really married up to the personnel they're watching and how they'll be utilized in the scheme. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about process stuff. Cause you're, you're hinting at it a little bit here. What does that process look like? So like, what does a draft meeting look like? Are you looking at several players in a row and, and are you, when you, when you're breaking down a player, is it personnel plus coaching? And you're just saying, here's the guy, let's watch him together. Let's talk about him. What does a draft meeting look like for well, you? Well, most of the time right now, it's just the personnel getting the initial board set before they go to the combine. Yeah. Uh, coaches are not involved because they haven't had time to look at any of the college tape. So what you're hoping is that you're stacking a board according to league value, but your scouts, because they've been with the coaches, hey, I know this 34 nose tackle, uh, Trevondre Sweat, uh, okay, will not fit in our scheme, but someone's going to take a swing on us, kid, because he's going to be a really too good two-down run-stopping nose tackle. But our defensive tackles have to penetrate. We will give him that value of where he's probably going to get drafted, but he may not be identified as a team fit for us. Right. So – the scouts and and personnel go through, stack the initial board. We always gave the coaches the list then, too. And they usually got 25 to 30 guys at their position. They spent the month of, you know, getting back from the combine and probably started right before the combine, uh, starting to look at these guys and had a whole month to get through that until we came together in April. Then the coaches and scouts get together. We go through each position. After the coaches leave, we start weaving the horizontal piece of it. But then I would give the coaches clusters. Listen, we were a little, there was some discrepancy here. So the, it was great because the offensive and defensive staff 
would then do a group study together. We would do a group study together uh, separately. So even the quarterback coach and the receiver coach are looking at some of these offensive tackles. So come back with your staff's rankings of these guys. And the same thing on the defensive side. And then we'd come and marry it all together. Uh, and if there was still discrepancies, then we would watch the tape. And and the coaches would really – coaches were more – they don't care about how they get graded for the league. They're more worried about this guy is going to fit us or not fit us. And if he does fit us, this is how we're going to use him. Love it. Yeah, that, it's so – so much to the process, Rick. I love it. That's great. Um, I've heard I've heard other GMs even this early in the process have like a broad idea of a player and a round and the potential that you might get them. Is it too or like I know every process is different. Would you are you are you in that mindset as early yeah. as February or are you in April? No, no. I per I, you know now I know I have a pretty good idea where most of these guys are going to not, go. Not so much where they're going to go, but like who you might actually pick, right? Like oh in yeah, the fourth we might actually have this receiver available, and this could be our pick as early as February. Those are how you may dictate on who your formal interviews are going to be at the combine. Yeah. yeah. So, because okay. uh, we had December meetings, and most of them were backboard and maybe the initial list. Uh, as a GM, you're reading all the grades coming in, and then you're trying to get caught up on the tape as much as you can. So when you get ready to go to the combine, then you're going to have, hey, we got to make sure we get in front of these 60 guys. I think it's a 60, you get 60 formal interviews. But that's not 60 are the top 60 in the draft. They're spread out where I think these four guys are going to be where we're picking in the first round. These eight guys may be second round, uh, you know, so you spread it out. So you get in front of guys, not only that you're going to potentially pick in the first round, but also guys that you're going to be looking at on Saturday as well. I think there's 321 invo uh, invites to the combine this year. Yep. Most teams have about 150 on their draft board on who they would uh, consider draftable. All right, man. Let, it's been awesome talking ball again. I'm, I'm sure you didn't learn anything again. I apologize. One of these days, we'll. I keep learning about this basketball theory you have. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I still, two years later, I still can't get it. I can't put it together in my head. If you're stuck without a top quarterback, you got to do everything. You unlock, you know, uncover every rock. For, okay. For Boy, that's, that's a what it is. New revelation. I never I heard know, of right? that. But actually, that's but a what way to. Yeah, one of my old bosses said, you have to stick your hand up a lot of goat's arses to find a diamond. That's, <laughs> I think that's what I was, I think that's what I'm getting at. That's that's well said. But you did it more politically correct than me. Yes, as yeah, as we said, we have to be here. <laughs> um, I did have some kind of follow-up, but I don't even remember what it was, which is great. I don't know. Anything else you want to talk about? While we're here. No, but hopefully you'll have me on again. I kind of <laughs> enjoy sitting here talking ball with you for an hour. I'm shocked. Well, at least you got that out of it. I'm shocked you do. No, that's good. Our listeners loved our conversation last year. I think the the process stuff, I think, is fantastic. Giving some insight as to what it's like in the seat and where you're going through all the process. Even I was going to ask about how you how you set the interviews at the combine. You answered that on your own. So that was so that was great. So I'll see you. Maybe I'll see you in Indy. Then. I will be there. Next Are you going to have your little booth or your little rooms? We've got our rooms set up. 
Any the, free uh, giveaways this year? Usually I come by just to get something free. Yeah, I'll see. I'll probably have like a nice pen or something for you. Oh, uh, great. Notebook. Yeah. <laughs> probably the same. Probably the leftovers from last from year. From last Rick. year. Here, yes. Rick, here's a pile for you. Yes. This is, yeah. <laughs> we will have our little corner in the JW Marriott again. Most teams will roll through there. And uh, media members like yourself will also walk just, walk through there as well. Yeah, just to get my free pen for the year. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, let's hang out in Indy for at least a few minutes. I'll get you your free swag. And uh, that's your appreciation for being on the podcast here today. No, it's serious that you guys do a phenomenal job. And, and to be honest with you, with your product, it makes my job as an analyst now on the media side a hundred times easier. We used it at the team level. Uh, and I used to ruffle your feathers just to see how you would respond sometimes, but it's an awesome product. And to be honest with you, I couldn't do what I do now without your, your product and everything you guys do at PFF. Well, we appreciate it, Rick, always. And uh, two pens yeah, we'll... now. Yes, you get, I'll get you, I'll get you the good swag because of the uh, testimonial. You'll get whatever you want. So we'll have, we'll have you back again. Maybe, uh, maybe even before the draft, we'll, we'll, we'll do it again. So. All right. Thanks, Sounds man. great. Yeah. Appreciate thanks, it. Steve. Yeah. All right. Great having Rick Spielman on the show. Appreciate always, always having him hit us up with any more questions. If I missed anything with Rick, as he said, he likes doing the show. He likes doing this, likes talking ball. So we can have him back on. If you've got any other questions, we could fire them his way. So, um, you know, it's combine time coming up soon. And uh, there's a whole level to the process. Love hearing that from Rick where, uh, the scouts are, how they get the coaches involved, how they have to prepare for all of their combine interviews. And it's just the beginning of the draft process. And, you know, there's still there's still so much more to do post-combine and, you know, getting the whole organization on board. So I always love hearing uh, those types of stories from a former general manager. All right, taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for the last couple of years, We've been drinking AG1 every single day here on the PFF NFL Podcast. No exceptions. Just one scoop, mix it with water. Once a day, every day. Makes me feel great, ready to go, ready to take on the day. And it's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, free and probiotics, and more. It's a powerfully healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to drink my AG1 first thing in the morning, which is recommended for optimal nutrition absor uh, absorption. N nutrients absorption, even. Fill up my shaker with extra cold water. Add one scoop of AG1, shake it up, ready to go. If I'm running short on time, I can mix my AG1 before heading out, or I'll grab a travel pack. Each has an each is an individual serving of AG1. It's easy to mix on the go, helping ensure I get my daily nutrients no matter what. So that's how I like to kick off my day. And if there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. That's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you if you want to take ownership of your health, you got to start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 plus K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase at drinkag1.com slash PFF. That's drinkag1.com slash PFF. Go check it out right now. All right, man. I usually talk to Sam like that, but Sam's not here. I got nobody to talk to. I'm sitting here talking to myself. This is the dream. Sam's gone, and I can just monologue by myself. No, that's it for today. That's our Monday show. Appreciate Rick Spielman joining. Uh, Sam will be back on Wednesday. And I think Thursday, we're probably getting into some wide receiver rankings. Wednesday, though, mailbag, NFL podcast at pff.com. Send us your questions. It's draft season. It's free agent season. It's off-season season. It's time to talk all about team building 
So we got a lot of fun stuff coming up here. So we want to hear from you in the email room. The email room? The mailbag. Man, I'm lost when I'm by myself. All right. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you again on Wednesday with more PFF NFL Podcasts.